Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside... You are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt, serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? The Lord condemns false leaders. He exposes their false agenda. You'll remember in the first part of our study, we saw the first judgment was preventing people from entering the kingdom and then refusing to go in yourself in verse 13. The second judgment was a willingness to convert people, not to God, but away from God. And to convert them to yourself in verse 15. The third judgment was blindly leading people to man-made traditions instead of God's word in verses 16 through 22. And now in short order, there's a fourth judgment, a fifth judgment, a sixth judgment, and a seventh judgment. In the fourth judgment, it's participating in every last detail of religion but ignoring what is most important, justice, mercy, faith in verses 23 and 24, the fifth judgment, keeping up appearances, making sure that all is well on the outside while in the inside your private world is empty and hurt and corrupt in verses 25 and 26. And the sixth judgment, acting spiritual, all the while covering up sin in verses 27 and 28. And of course, the seventh judgment, pretending that you've learned from the past, but your present behavior betrays the fact that you probably haven't learned anything at all. 
The religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees were majoring in those things that were minor and were minoring in those things which were major. False leaders extort from others in order to give to themselves. False leaders aren't content to simply remain filthy. They have to infect you. False leaders suffer from an exaggerated sense of self. It was Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher who also invented the the philosophical basis for modern computing, who said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. It is those people who, from religious conviction are committed to doing what's wrong. And so we begin with exaggerating the minor issues while ignoring the major issues. Look again in verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done and without leaving the others undone. And then he says, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Once again, Jesus calls the scribes and the Pharisees posers, false speakers. Later on, blind guides. Why blind guides? Because they are content to lead people astray. Now Jesus will use a play on words. It isn't found in the Greek language, but in the Aramaic language, which was native to Jesus. In the the native language of, 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 of Jesus, the word gnat and camel are very, very similar in sound. And so it's almost melodic as Jesus pronounces Judgment. Remember, the judgment is a judicial pronouncement of guilt unless there is a radical change and a willingness to turn that's going to lead to an inevitable outcome. Tithes were used to support the priests and the Levites. The law required tithes from farm produce in Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. Before Israel's Occupation by the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. Israel was a theocracy. One-tenth of their income was used to support the government. Another tenth was used to support the priesthood. Other tithes were given to those who were most vulnerable and at risk in their society. Widows, orphans, aliens. You'll find that in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 and 29. The ancient people of Israel wound up paying about 23% of their total income in any number of tithes and offerings. The law did not require tithes of dried green plants or spices or medicinal herbs, but the scribes and the Pharisees, because these Dried green herbs were consumable, 
began to engage in a gigantic debate. Craig Keener in his wonderful book, Bible Background Commentary, points out that the ancient sources have the Pharisees debating whether or not it was lawful to tithe cumin. Keener also points out that Jesus uses hyperbole. He's going to exaggerate a point in order to make a point, in order to avoid the impurity caused by a living bug in their cup. Now, you have to understand something. The, bu the bug is still alive, but it runs the risk of drowning, and they will strain at the gnat because you can't eat dead things. So they'll keep the... You would think that <laughs> it's just gross, you know, swallowing insects. It isn't about offending God. It's like, who wants to eat a bug? But Jesus is charging them with a willingness to swallow a camel, which is the largest land animal in Judea. And it was, of course, an unclean animal. So Jesus paints a picture. He says, you're willing to go to extraordinary lengths to get the bug out of your cup, but somehow you manage to squeeze a camel and then chug it down? Now, by the way, the only way that you're going to do that is to have a very powerful blender. <laughs> See, the camel doesn't actually mean a camel. It represents the uncleanness that comes from neglecting justice and mercy and faith. Was it wrong to pay attention to detail? No. The problem was their focus on the details led to an abandonment of the weightier matters. Law justice, mercy, and faith. We could spend a great deal of, of time on at least those three issues, justice, mercy, and faith. I literally woke up in the middle of the night thinking about justice, mercy, and faith. Jesus speaks of these being the weighty matters, the heavy matters, the substantive matters. I suspect because of what they are. In the most primitive definition possible, justice is the weighing of actions and making sure that the consequences are appropriate. And mercy is getting what you don't deserve. But the word is pregnant with, with vision and compassion and even just a just the most elemental, the most fundamental consideration of justice. If you begin just for a moment to consider what you deserve. There are people, blind people, wicked people, deluded people. Who think that they're fine just the way that they are. But an honest evaluation of yourself. And say... Lord, give me what I deserve is going to result in a cry for mercy. Lord, if you give me what I deserve, I am not going to make it. And so you beg for mercy. But think about this. In the presence of justice and the presence of mercy, it is only faith that makes mercy possible. And so there's a call. Why would the Pharisees pay such close attention to the counting of leaves but neglect the larger issue of how to treat people? 
how to have a right relationship with God. The Pharisees were committed to the point of obsession. One ancient rabbi alleges that he had trained a donkey to eat only grain that had been tithed. Some rabbis believed that if a wife served food that had not been tithed, that was grounds for divorce. Think about how stupid that is. Once again, we're reminded what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. The poor in spirit inherit the kingdom, but the proud shut up the kingdom, block entrance. The meek inherit the earth, but the proud are sent to hell. God fills those who long for righteousness, but those who are greedy for gain are left empty. The merciful obtain mercy, but the scribes and the Pharisees Embrace what is trivial and neglect justice. Ignore mercy. Degrade faith. It's possible that they took justice and mercy and faith for granted. And then they ignored them altogether. As they started to drown in a sea of triviality. The false religious leaders had rules for everything. They see the little things clearly. And then they become blind to the big picture. Mint, dill, or anise, and cumin were garden herbs that you would grow in your garden. Or you would put it on your deck. Or you would put it on your windowsill. I remember my grandma Geraci had a, a spice garden. She brought sweet Italian basil from Italy and she grew it on her windowsill. Miss Mary grows cilantro on her windowsill. She doesn't tithe it, but it usually winds up in the sauces that you eat for burrito madness. It eventually gets to the church. The Lord Jesus isn't opposed to the details. Look what he says. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Do you pay attention to the details? But have the details so blinded you to the big picture? Imagine some of you who have been Christians all your life. You made the decision a long time ago that the first fruit would belong to the Lord. You are faithful in your tithes and your offerings. But for some reason, you give yourself permission to be rude or mean to someone at church. How is that even possible? Some Christians themselves become unconcerned about justice and mercy and, and sometimes even faith. Do we show mercy to the most vulnerable, to the people at risk, to the people who are helpless? Some people are ashamed to help the homeless. They're ashamed to interact with the poor and the suffering and the needy. Some people think that we help the poor or we help the suffering or that we somehow sort of dangle the gospel as a carrot in front of them, hoping that if we feed them or we house them or we clothe them, we're given an opportunity to give the gospel. And don't get me wrong, we want to give people the gospel, but would you feed the hungry and house the homeless and clothe the naked if you knew that you knew that you knew that not a single one would ever come to Christ. Let's hope that if the reason they don't come to Christ is not because you didn't display the love of God and share the gospel. Because you remind them, I'm doing this because God loves you. 
I'm doing this because Jesus loves you. Sometimes we find ourselves counting seeds and ignoring sinners. The Bible doesn't condemn giving or or generosity, but false teachers will take giving and generosity and then magnify it to the point of obsession. They'll spend months and years teaching prosperity. Can you imagine if I said to you, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're going to begin a 12-month series on why you should give to the church. Anyone who has ever been here would go, that doesn't sound like Gino. It doesn't sound like something that he would do. It's okay to talk about giving and it's okay to talk about generosity. But some people talk about it to the point where they ignore the gospel. They ignore grace. They ignore justice. They ignore mercy. They ignore faith. They ignore Faith, hope, and love, or they redefine faith to mean faith is the acquisition of personal wealth. Beware of churches that focus on giving to the detriment and ignore prayer, service, suffering, the gospel. Or what it means to be saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself. For the church that says, have you forgotten about your heart? Have you forgotten about your circumstances? Have you forgotten what it means to be a true disciple, a lover of Jesus, and a follower of Jesus? It's so easy for Christians to be caught up in the little things. And all of a sudden we just completely forget how to treat people or ignore them or fail to pray for them. And so he talks about maintaining appearances while your whole world, your private world is collapsing inside of you. In verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside are full of extortion." And self-indulgence, blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside may be clean also. Even in the midst of condemnation, even in the midst of judgment, he reminds them of the necessity of not remaining in the condition. Jesus is going to give two graphic illustrations, a cup and a platter in verse 25 and 26, and then he's going to give yet another graphic illustration of a sepulcher in verses 27 through 29. These two statements illustrate one powerful point, that it's possible to look good on the outside but things are awful inside. Someone said to me today, you look good. And I said, you're just saying that because it's true. (laughs) Yeah, I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) But sometimes I just run out of things to say. Imagine it's Thanksgiving dinner. 
and you bring out grandma's beautiful antique platter with subtle glaze, dramatic gold leaf. You have beautiful china, stunning silverware, polished to the point that you can see your nose hairs in the reflection. And there on the platter is last year's turkey and moldy cranberries and curdled gravy. The religious leaders are careful to look the part. But Jesus says, there's something wrong. There's something broken. There's something corrupt. The religious leaders pay close attention to ritual purity. And by the way, for those of you who have the opportunity to go to Israel and you get to come with me, there are ancient ritual baths that are carved out of solid stone. When you go to the southern steps of Jerusalem, the, the archaeologists have uncovered literal, they're called mikvaot. These are ritual baths where, where the people would walk into the ritual bath in order to experience cleansing. The, the, these ritual baths are found in the northern part of, of Israel, in Masada. And it, it would appear that even some Jews would carry utensils into the ritual bath so that when they were cleansing themselves, they would also cleanse their utensils. And in the ancient world, there was a raging debate, again, between the followers of Shammai and the followers of Hillel, Shammai was in the majority, Hillel was in the minority. The followers of Shammai insisted that if the outside of the cup could be clean, it didn't really matter if the inside were not. The followers of Hillel insisted that the inside of the cup must first be cleansed and then the outside. But Jesus is taking it way beyond a theological debate. He's talking about the practical reality of what it means to have a right relationship with God and Christ. Remember on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the pure in heart will see God. Haven't you wondered why the pure in heart see God? It's because they can't see anything else. When I was a kid growing up, there was an ivory soap commercial that said, Ivory soap is 99.99% pure. It has no detergent or uh, perfumes or additives. The pure in heart have no additives. It's the only thing that they can see. And Jesus is pointing out that they're not pure in heart. And they're not merciful in heart. And so what's in their heart? Jesus accuses them of being full of extortion and self-indulgence. The word extortion means literally in the Greek text, robbery. This is the kind of word that you would use to describe a pirate rather than a priest. The word meant to pillage, to ravage, to plunder. The second word is akrasia. It, it, it was a, a kind of basic self-indulgence. Acrasia was a word that you would use to describe a self-willed child. I was talking to one of my grandchildren and I used the word stubborn. And she asked me, Papa, what does stubborn mean? What does that word mean? 
And I said, it's a word that we use to describe when we want what we want instead of what God wants. Or what mom and dad want. Or what papa wants. It's a word we use to describe when a child refuses to do what God wants. It's a, it's a word that you would use in the ancient world to describe what babies would do to satisfy themselves. False religious leaders squeeze one more offering, one more special offering. They rob people they're supposed to be serving. Perhaps they're even charging for, for their teaching ministry, charging people money to hear God's word. In the ancient world was strictly forbidden. And so Jesus says, blind Pharisee. And he makes the accusation personal and direct. He is in effect saying, clean up your act. Clean up your act and start on the inside. Jesus accuses them of being religious predators, lining their pockets, expanding their personal wealth on the offerings of people who couldn't afford to really finance their greed. I once heard a preacher say, I drive a Rolls Royce because God don't want me to drive no Volkswagen. I was driving a Volkswagen. False prophets pretend to serve and care, all the while lining their own pockets. But remember Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know the song. The things of earth grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace, the purity of the believer allows him or her to see God because they're not distracted. The religious leaders weren't pure in heart. They were defiled in heart. And so for us, who somehow comes to the conclusion that if we can just maintain the facade, if we can just maintain the smile, if we can maintain what looks like external sanitary conditions, that we will be just fine. But again, Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence. Out of it springs the issues of life, D.L. Moody used to say, I'll take care of my character. My reputation will take care of itself. The Pharisees lived for reputation instead of character. Again, Chuck Smith condemned poor mouthing. I talked about it last week. Ministers who complain about what they don't have. And I've heard the most unbelievable tales of misery, pathetic tales People will joke with you to part with your money. They'll scold you to part with your money. They'll shame you to part with your money. They'll disgust you to part with your money. They'll threaten you to part with your money. Have you ever wound up giving less money just because you were disgusted with the preacher? Mark Twain tells the story that he was so sickened by the long appeal for money, not only did he not give what he planned, but when the plate came by, he actually took money out of it. That's why we have agape boxes. 
And so he talks about acting spiritual to cover up sin. Look what it says in verse 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In the ancient world, particularly for the religious Jew, contact with the dead rendered you ritually impure for a week. In Numbers 19.11, listen to what it says. Quote, he who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean for seven days. Numbers 19.16, whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword or who has died or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. You may not get or understand what it meant to be unclean, but if you were unclean, you were ritually disqualified from participating in the sacrifice, from participating in the temple, from participating in the synagogue. That's the idea. So the Pharisees believed that you were rendered ritually unclean or impure, not if you touched a body, but if your shadow, if you're walking and your shadow fell on a corpse or on a gravestone or on a graveyard, you were also rendered ritually unclean. Now, think about what, what's being said. Remember what I said to you. The Pharisees built fences. Can't touch a dead body? Then you can't get near a dead body. If your body gets within the, the distance that your shadow could cast on the dead body, then you are rendered ritually unclean. So the Pharisees believed that you were rendered ritually unclean for, for absurdities. In the ancient world, inconspicuous tombs or limestone ossuaries were whitewashed each spring before Passover to warn the passerby to avoid the tomb and therefore avoid the ritual impurity. So Jesus accuses them of hypocrisy, lawlessness. In the Beatitudes in chapter 5 verse 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The religious leaders weren't peacemakers. They were peace fakers and peace breakers. At that very moment, now just think about what's happening. As Jesus is speaking to them, at that very moment, even as he's speaking to them, deep in their own heart, as they're listening to Jesus speak, they're plotting to kill him. In the minds and hearts They've already put the prince of death, or prince of peace to death. The irony isn't lost on Jesus. The religious leaders in just a few days are going to incite the crowds to crucify Jesus. Think about it. They're unwilling to let their shadow fall on a grave, but in their hearts, they are committed to killing an innocent man. They'll refuse to enter Pilate's judgment hall in just a few chapters for fear of defiling themselves. But they're willing to kill an innocent man. 
It's like the Christian who says to his wife, I don't believe in divorce, so I'm going to kill you. What? Don't you think divorce is a merciful alternative to murder? Paul told the Romans in chapter 2, verse 21, you therefore who teach another, are you instructed? You that preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Think about it. They look spiritual on the outside, but they're dead, dead on the inside. You know, we're sometimes annoyed or shocked by gross hypocrisy of our leaders. But for some reason, we become comfortable with our own hypocrisy. Are we disgusted by obesity, but perfectly comfortable with our own imperfections? We're willing to look on a person and evaluate them and judge them and then draw a conclusion all the while ignoring our own imperfections. And so look what Jesus says, pretending to learn from the past but your present behavior betrays you. Look what he says in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets, you adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had lived in the days of the fathers, we wouldn't have been partakers of with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up than the measure of your father's guilt. What does Jesus mean by that? What does that mean? Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. This is a reference to the compounding sin, the increasing sin. This is the heaping on of sin, beginning with Cain killing Abel as you march through the history of all of the Jewish people and all of humanity for that matter, adding insult to injury and insult to injury and insult to injury, the measured from the past into the present that's going to travel into the immediate future. Remember, remember in their minds and in their hearts, they're going to make the murder complete. By killing Jesus. They are going to kill him. Why do they build tombs for the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, hey, if we'd lived back in those days, we wouldn't have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. It's their way of saying, you know what? If we had lived back in the past, we would have been nice to Jeremiah. We would have been nice to Isaiah. We would have been nice to all of those people who weren't nice to the prophets. We've learned our lesson. We don't want to participate in the mistakes that our fathers made. And Jesus reminds them by admitting that their fathers killed the prophets. They were admitting to their spiritual legacy. And we could be guilty of the very same thing. Well, if we had lived in those days, and some of you have even imagined it. 
You've imagined what it would be like to go back in time and space and watch as Jesus is paraded into the trial room as he's, as he's marched to a, a cruel cross and you're hearing people scream at the top of, top of their lungs, crucify him, kill him, kill him, crucify him. And you imagine your own voice saying, no, let him go. He hasn't done anything. And you convince yourself that you would scream for his release. If I had lived back in those days, I would have done everything that I possibly could to honor and obey Jesus. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves dishonoring him. And disobeying him. The religious leaders felt certain that they were superior to their neighbors, that they were more religious. And Jesus says in verse 33 serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? In case you're wondering, serpents and brood of vipers, it's not terms of endearment. Jesus and Indiana Jones have one thing in common. They both hate snakes. Now, again, if you're a herba, or whatever the snake studier is, you could say, you know, can we be certain that Jesus is disgusted by all snakes? I think it's possible that Jesus loves garter snakes and bull snakes and friendly snakes. But he uses this epithet to describe how he really feels about the religious leaders. Again, do you remember the commercial way back in the day? There was this crazy commercial that said, like father, like son. And it was this guy, he's cleaning his truck or his car and his son is cleaning the car with him and, and he goes to light up a cigarette and the son pretends to be smoking a cigarette and the commercial goes, like father, like son. Think about it. Jesus is in effect saying, like father, like son. The serpent is Satan. They're sons of the serpent. They're a brood of vipers. In the past, their fathers killed the prophets. In the present, their progeny wants to kill Jesus. Jesus, in the parable of the wheat and tares earlier in Matthew 13, said, The field is the word. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the wicked one. Jesus says, Satan has a family. And the Bible paints a picture of Satan as a liar, a thief, a murderer. And so the Pharisees are following in their father's footsteps. The Pharisees were hypocrites. Look what it says. Verse 13, hypocrites. Verse 14, hypocrites. Verse 15, hypocrites. Verse 23, hypocrites. Verse 25, hypocrites. Verse 27, hypocrites. Verse 29, hypocrites. How many times do you have to say it before you go, I wonder if Jesus thinks they're hypocrites. <laughs> Blind guides, 
verse 16, verse 24, verse 26. Fools and blind, verse 16 and 19. Liars and murderers, verse 30, verse 34. And so they follow Satan's schemes. Remember, Satan is a liar. Satan keeps us ignorant of God's purposes. Satan targets the mind. His favorite weapon is lies. And so our defense against lies and to not be ignorant of God's purposes is is to, again, love the word, study the word, embrace the word, live the word so that we have the imparted grace of God, the indwelling spirit of God, the interceding son of God in heaven praying for us. The scribes and the Pharisees are at that moment plotting to commit the biggest crime ever committed. Satan and serpents are going to be punished. Satan's head is bruised, it says in Genesis 3. 15 and serpents crawl in the dust looking for holes according to the bible satan's sons receive satan's reward morality william coleman said must give way to humility otherwise we lose contact with our frailty Indeed, our humanity, he wrote, once we believe that we are inherently different from the thief or the prostitute, we begin to lose touch with reality. And so, minimum, this becomes a supercharged message. Remember who you are. Remember justice. Remember mercy. Remember faith. And look what the final statement says. How will you escape the condemnation? Remember, that's the judicial pronouncement of guilt. How will you escape hell? Why does Jesus say that? How will you escape hell? How are you going to escape hell? Jesus is in effect saying, if you continue in the circumstance that you find yourself in, if your heart doesn't change if you continue to go through with the plans to murder me how in the world are you going to escape hell in ancient times when farmers burned their fields nests of vipers and and snakes looked like little crooked twigs as they made every effort to escape the fire. Jesus is in effect saying, do you really think that you're going to be able to outrun judgment? Jesus is going to have more to say about the coming judgment. But for now, remember, false leaders keep themselves out of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, this is the first and most damning condemnation concerning the religious leaders. They refuse to go to heaven. And then they want to keep the people who want to go to heaven away from heaven. They preach lies. And they substitute a false faith for true faith. 
They pervert the truth by promoting lies. They practice extortion. They indulge themselves at the expense of others. And then they elevate themselves all the while trying to find a way to bring other people down. The right prayer is this prayer. God, help me. God, help me. God, help me if I'm keeping other people out of heaven. God, help me if I've substituted the truth for a lie. Lord, help me if I find myself so preoccupied with the trivialities that I've neglected the most important thing, justice, mercy, faith. Again, once you start to consider justice, you'll cry out for mercy. And the only way that mercy even becomes a possibility is by faith, believing that Jesus is the satisfying solution to the problem of your sin. Not your wife's sin, not your husband's sin, not your children's sin, not your neighbor's sin, but your sin. And then there's hope. Jesus isn't done. Next week, we finish the chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for mercy. Disconnected from grace and mercy, all we can hope for is justice. And how indeed can we answer the question, how can we escape hell? There's only one way. We have to turn from our sin and we have to turn to the Savior. We have to cry out to you to examine our heart, to do a just evaluation of what's going on inside of us, admit that there's something wrong, and then turn from it and turn to you. Lord, thank you for grace and thank you for mercy. And thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, that Jesus was willing to die and be the satisfying substitute for our sin. Lord, I pray that each and every person within the sound of my, my voice would only with great care pray, Lord, give me what I deserve. Lord, I pray, please, Lord, give me what I don't deserve. I pray, Lord, that in grace and mercy, you would wash me and cleanse me that you would reconcile me to yourself and forgive me of my sins and give me an eternity with Jesus. And so again, Lord, we commit these things to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.